Scripture today comes to us from the book of Deuteronomy, and uh, I'll be reading that, but also encourage you to uh, um, take note of 1 John uh, chapter 5 as well, but I will not be reading that part of it. Deuteronomy 4, uh, 25 through 31, this is the word of God. When you father children and children's children and have grown old in the land, if you act corruptly by making a carved image in the form of anything and by doing what is evil in the sight of the Lord your God, so as to provoke him to anger, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that you will soon utterly perish from the land that you are going over to the Jordan to possess. You will not live long in it, but will be utterly destroyed. And the Lord will scatter you among the peoples, and you will be left few in number among the nations whom the Lord will drive you. And there you will serve gods of wood and stone, the work of human hands that neither see nor hear nor eat nor smell. But from there you will seek the Lord your God, and you will find him. If you search after him with all your heart and with all your soul, when you are in tribulation and all these things come upon you in the latter days, you will return to the Lord your God and obey his voice. For the Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not leave you or destroy you or forget the covenant with your fathers that he swore to them. This is the word of the Lord. Will you join me in prayer? Father, thank you for the word of God. Uh, we ask that it will do its work. Uh, it, is, it is our opportunity now to re- come before you and to figure out what it is that drives us away from you and what you have done to drive us to you. Father, thank you for every person here, and I ask that you will uh, speak to them and speak to me as we endeavor to discover what it looks like to have you uh, as our Lord. And we continue to, to discover that and to search that out. And so we cry out to you. We need you. In Christ's name we pray. Uh, amen. All right. I'm going to uh, continue in this series called The, uh, the Gospel-Centered Life. Um, let me sort of... Uh, ask you to raise your hand. Were you here last week, just by chance? Raise your hand to get a sense of who was here. Okay, good, all right. Most of you were here. We've been doing a series on the gospel-centered life, and last week it included uh, a missionary that we support, Tim Conkling, who spoke on the idea of lifestyle repentance. And I encourage you to go to the website and make sure you catch not only that one, but the previous messages if you haven't listened to them. But we're continuing on in a series called The Gospel-Centered Life. And this morning, uh, we're looking at the subject of idolatry. And strangely enough, we make progress when we discover our idols as, as Christians. Now, this morning, I have been thinking about two kinds of people who might be among us today. Um, the first kind of person is very laid back. You're very casual. You receive trouble in life pretty well. You're just one of these peaceful people that irritates the rest of us. Um, you just have a nice personality, you just go along with the flow, 
And you might find this to be a very, very strange subject. How on earth could people get so wrapped up on about anything to, to, to call it or to make it an idol? That might be, that might be you out there. You're going to be tough to reach today. Another person is going to be, who's be hard to reach is going to be someone who, when they think about themselves and their standards and their ethics and morality, they think that they're actually doing pretty well. Of course, they're not perfect, but when they think about other people and other people's troubles and other people's lack of morality, um, these people tend to think of themselves as pretty happy. They're pretty consistent with themselves. They may attend church and... Um, find some, a few reasons to believe in Jesus, but all in all, they're pretty, they're pretty well-adjusted um, people. They have a good consistency, at least in their own mind, about how well they're doing. You might be hard to reach this morning if, if you're what's called a happy moralist. You, you just are happy because you see yourself as complying with your own standards, and even when you think about the Bible, you're doing pretty well. So I'll try to, I'm going to try to reach you this morning. We'll see. Uh, obviously, God's Spirit has to do that. So this morning, we're going to look at the subject of idolatry. Um, the Christian heart is a, is a troubling place. Uh, if you're not a Christian here today, and you work with a Christian, um, you know how troubling that heart can be. You know they, they can be irritable, Christians. They can be angry. They can be just as dysfunctional as you. And you wonder, what on earth is going on? Why can't they be more joyful? And if you are a non-Christian, I'm really glad you're here, and I hope you observe us struggling with our own tendencies. The subject of idolatry really is fairly central to our church. I would think that I'm in some way addressing idolatry in a Sunday morning message just about every Sunday in hopes that we will have renewal. Now, when you think about the human problem, when you think about the problems people encounter, in our particular day and age, there's all kinds of ideas out there about what is the core issue of the human heart. Many of the ideas are environmental or therapeutic. If I had a better upbringing, I'd be a different person. If I had better parents, I'd be this kind of person. So there's a lot of blame shifting going on in our cultural analysis or how our culture analyzes our problems. A lot of discussion about our bodies and, and uh, DNA and tendencies of the, of the chemicals in our bodies. A lot of discussion about behavior related to some, some sort of organic problem within the person. A lot of very clever ways, I would say, of excuse making. And the Bible uh, gives no quarter. The Bible gives no, uh, no allegiance to excuse-making. In fact, the Bible is very direct about what is the human condition. And the human condition is, and here the big macro is this. The big macro picture goes like this. We've taken some aspect of creation, and we were made as the lords of creation. Thinking of Genesis 1 and 2, Adam and Eve made as the lords of creation, dominion over all creatures, over all that has been created on behalf of God. And man fell and turned away from the living God, and here's what happened. Romans 1 tells us that we served and worshipped the creation or the creature. 
And so what's happened is that man who is over creation now has, creation now is over man. And so in the pursuit of what we would think is freedom or what we hope would be freedom, we actually have enslaved ourselves. So anything of this creation, any, any aspect of this creation can actually own us and enslave us. The Bible calls that idolatry. If you're not convinced of that, um, but you are familiar with the Bible, you might think about the life of Jesus. And uh, you're aware that he did miracles and he taught people. And uh, if you're familiar with the Gospels, you know that they end with a group of people, mostly the Pharisees, but the Sadducees, the religious leaders of his day, uh, could not handle him. They were threatened by him. They plotted to kill him. And on a human level, they achieved what they wanted to do to kill him. And at just a basic response to that, well, why not just let him be? If he's crazy, if he's got his own little religious following, let him do that. Why do you have to kill him? Ponder that. Think on that. What had gripped the human heart there in those leaders so seriously that they plotted to kill him and they used uh, what power they had to pull that off? In fact, when you look at your Bible and there are sort of these strange events like Cain killing Abel, or even something like Esau, when he is, is willing to give up his birthright for a bowl of, of soup. Strange story, actually, isn't it? D- to discard all that God had promised him and say, no, I'll, I'll give it away for this momentary satisfaction of my stomach. The human condition is described throughout the Bible as idolatry. This idolatry can go outward or inward, it can be what you think of yourself. It can be what you imagine yourself to be, what you should be, the, the level of success you should achieve in life. It can go outward or it can go inward. Inward meaning that if the idol you imagine in your heart doesn't work, you will turn on yourself. There are idols outside that you wish would work for you, maybe your career, but it's also what you think about your career. I remember first being impacted by the subject of of the, of the human heart when a, a pitcher for the Anaheim Angels named Donnie Moore in the early 80s lost a, the sixth game of the American League playoff to the Yankees. And all they had to do was win this game and they'd go to the World Series. And Donnie Moore was this hot young pitcher. And he threw a bad pitch to a really good hitter. And the ball out of the park. And that spelled the loss not only of that game, but then they had to go play the Yankees in New York, and they lost the seventh game. I'm trying to think. Six months to a year later, Donnie Moore took his life. I remember this happening in the early 80s. And how, what is it about the human condition that would make someone so turn inwardly with self-hatred that they would actually take their own life? So as we look and we look at this onion called the human heart, this perplexing thing where at one level we have our surface sins, but at another level we have the much deeper sin, this all this turning away from the living God and the experience of sadness and sorrow and brokenness. And maybe one of the great things that will happen this morning is if you've arrived this morning and you feel beat up and you feel frustrated, um, 
maybe work is just too important. What, what, what is happening to your heart when you think about your anger recently? That's sort of a surface sin, but what's underneath it? What, what are you believing too much? What has gripped your heart? It's interesting that Moses, <laughs> Moses knows the kind of crowd he's working with, and he, he has a real, real clear understanding of, I know your parents, and they turned to idolatry. And I know you. And these were the teenagers who grew up and were now entering in the land of Canaan. And Moses promises them, if you turn away and you turn and make something else your Lord, God will not be indifferent to that. He'll be after you for your good. And here is the thing about idolatry. In the church, it feels like a hot subject. It's almost too hot to touch. There's a heaviness in the room. I can feel it. But when you speak about idols, it's the most important thing you can do for the Christian heart because it's where we live. And we are not out of Egypt in our hearts. You may be in, the, you may be in Canaan, but Egypt is still in your heart. Can you identify with that? Can you, can you connect with that? So, first point, you're redeemed. You've been brought out of Egypt, but you're restless. Redeemed yet restless. We are like Israel of old. And God reminds them that he has, by his grace, brought them out of the land, and he is going to keep them, but he will bring a great discipline a great chastisement to them once they're in the land, redeemed yet restless. What is it about idols? In the ancient day, well, it's something you see. You see the nations bowing. You see the nations creating idols. The thing about idolatry is essentially this. It's, I know that God is good, but do I have all my bases covered? What, what happened in polytheism at a basic level is this. You never really could control the gods, but you never want to forget one. You never want to, want to leave one out. Because remember that thunderstorm and that lightning that hit that farmer over there? Yeah. He didn't offer up a, an offering to that god. There was a great fear of the gods, but you better not forget to cover your bases. And it's possible they might come through for you. And they were a way of, of finding favor with the surrounding neighbors of, of Israel of old. And so the kings, particularly the kings in the northern kingdom of Israel, when the kingdom divided, they were, they were wicked and they turned to uh, a lot of compromises and, and treaties with the, with the surrounding nations. And the one area they wanted to, to say that we're with you, we, uh, we are in allegiance together, is our, our understanding of the universe is the same. It's like yours. The stars are related to some god. The way that the rain falls on the ground is related to some god. And it was a denial of the true, true god. But it was a way of seeing. For us, it's, there's a much... There's a direct connection as well. Because you can physically feel your control over people. You've got a project that's so important to you, you can feel its power. 
In fact, you can see it. If, it's, if you're building something, you can, you can see what your imagination is now crafting. And so the physical world, or the world that we even imagine in our minds, still has power over us. And there's a restlessness in us. So we're redeemed, but restless. The Christian heart is described in the New Testament in various ways. You can see Christians struggling. This restlessness, the Galatians turned to another gospel. You can read about that. The Corinthians were very impressed with people and having prestigious kind of apostles that they created. You see that the kingdom of God comes to people, but they are not through with the idols of their own hearts. And then secondly, idolatry means that you never really encounter just an idea or an object. You never really just encounter an idea or an object. Um, What I mean by this is that you encounter something that is a way of being. It's a way of, of saving your life. Perhaps some of you with your career, you, you, you think too highly of it. It is far too important. It has a grip on you. And it's not just a job. It's your very life. And so you've never really just encountered an idea or a thing. You've encountered a potential idol. And Christians who are aware of this and aware of their weaknesses understand this. Uh, Just last week, uh, we were in Chattanooga. Maris was part of a a leadership camp at Covenant College, and I was on a study break, which I really, really appreciated. And uh, in the evening, I went down to uh, an area, and there was sort of this new new age bookstore. And, uh, you know, they have chimes and incense and a lot of... Well, like stickers that say, may the forest be with you, you know? I don't know. I like these stores. I like having conversations. You can get traction with people in there. They have convictions. I like them. It's okay. And there was a section of pottery, beautiful pottery, the best pottery in Chattanooga. And I could feel its power. And I looked at it and stepped back. I went, whoa, wait a minute here. That's not just a coffee mug. That's a coffee mug. And I could feel its power. I was drawn in. Like Frodo putting the ring on. No. And then I went up to the counter. And I said, tell me about this one. And I stared at this one particular glaze. I have it downstairs. It's so powerful I couldn't bring it up here. It'd be an idol. But I, I said, tell me about this one. I brought her over to the counter, and she says, oh, well, it's an elderly lady. We don't get her stuff very often. So if I came here like a year from now, do you think it'll still be here? She says, I don't know. This is my last chance. Do you feel the power of this idol? It's whispering to me. Now you think I'm crazy. Have you ever bought something you didn't need? Hello? Do you know that I could live the rest of my life using styrofoam cups? You know that, right? I'd be just fine. I would not lack anything in life. But I got that mug. 
because I wanted to be surrounded by the beauty of that mug. And when I have a sip of coffee, I will remind myself of how wise I was <laughs> to, to buy this mug because this artisan may not be around any longer. It's a rare mug. It's growing in value every day. You see? Now, if I keep at it, you, you think I'm crazy. Keep fixating on it. Keep thinking about pottery. Keep thinking about how special it is. Now, watch what happens to your heart. Keep thinking about how clean your house is supposed to be and watch what happens to your heart. Keep thinking about how perfect your children are supposed to be and watch what happens to your, to your heart. Keep thinking about your expectations for your spouse and watch what happens to your heart. How about your expectations for church or for the preacher or for anything? Watch what happens to your heart. Many people don't want to go here. They would like to just kind of, uh, I don't know, I'm going to stay busy. Uh, I don't know about... And the most important thing you can do is to say to yourself, I recognize it isn't just an idea. It isn't just a thing. It's an idol. And that's the first step to actually breaking the idol's grip on you. You are a covenant creature. And God is telling his people in Deuteronomy 4 through Moses, it, this is how it works. You can't turn away... You can't turn away from the living God. You can't turn away from the living God without turning to another God. This is hard for us moderns to believe. To believe that I've actually been wired this way. So that you're always in covenant with God. And if you turn away from the living God and turn and serve some aspect of creation, then you've turned away from the life of blessing and God is going to bring to you cursings. And you will taste those cursings and you will experience those cursings and if you are redeemed, if you are a Christian, the tasting of those, that bitterness, actually that deadness, is for your good. If you had a stack of $100 bills that was so big you couldn't fit it in your pocket, you would be happy. And you hold it up and you see this stack of $100 bills. But here's the deal. It will afford you many, many thrills in life. But it is not alive. And the subject of idolatry in the Bible is this. Consistently, when a prophet speaks about idolatry, it is essentially this. They can't speak or smell or walk or talk they are dead, and you, if you bow down to them, will become like them. Their deadness will rub off on you. That stack of $100 bills, it is not alive. And you've turned away from the living God, and you've said, I'm willing to become dead in order to have the momentary pleasures of whatever this idol is. And God says, I will let you taste the deadness of your pursuit. And it will drive you absolutely crazy. And if you are a Christian, you will be miserable. And others around you will know you're miserable. Deep within, deep within, 
is a whole philosophy of life, a gospel. It is no longer just that you turn to something for a moment. You turn to something as a way of living, as a functional savior. You've never really met just an idea or an object. You've met a potential idol. So one of the blessings of worship is to expose the idols of the heart. Oh, God, it just seems so alive. Oh, God, I seemed so alive. Oh, God, I seemed so filled with life when I went this way. I didn't see it. But now, 10 years later, 20 years later, I see the bitter fruit of my pursuits. And thank you that you've brought me home. Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, we really are just repenting of our idols, discovering Jesus once, o- once again. And fathers and mothers, as you shepherd your children at, at home, you're watching for their, the tendencies of their hearts, the idols that they believe, the things that they could only, that would make, give them life, that would only ever provide for them. So many things could be spoken about on the subject of idolatry. Um, Whole nations can get caught up in idolatry. Uh, Whole philosophies of life can take over a nation. Uh, We think of just uh, the early uh, 100 years ago with the Soviet Union and um, uh, 1930s in Germany, uh, a utilitarian philosophy of life overcame that nation uh, where human beings, uh, ultimately, if they didn't serve the purposes of the state, uh, and the state has arbitrarily chosen some system of right and wrong, of good and evil, the loss of, of absolutes rooted in scripture. Then we have the descent into death. And we have all the, tra- the, tra- the tragedies, just one example of, of 1930s uh, and early 1940s Germany, where an idol has gripped the entire political philosophy of, of a nation. In pursuing idols, we really have become... Uh, Lost in that we've, we're no longer unified with the true God. And now we're, we're dissipated all over the place. We're now, we're now unable to, to focus, and we're actually scattered in our minds and our hearts. Well, there are a few idols I'd like to talk about, and then I'll, I'm done. There's the idol of control, um, where things just have to be a certain way. How you... Uh, how you conduct yourself around the, the house, your family, your work. Uh, people have to act and conform a certain way to your standards. Um, it is important that you have uh, procedures and operating procedures and uh, standard operating procedures as, as you and the military talk. Those are very important. But it's how you respond to those who, who fail, and particularly your own personal idols of control. How about idol of reputation? Uh, you work often very hard to perhaps put others down or make sure they, they are seen in a bad light in order that you, you look good. Idol, idol of success, security, having enough. Idols of pleasure, idols of knowledge. Others are put down because they don't know what you know. Idol of recognition. Again, sort of this, a lot of these relate to how we talk about other people. 
positioning ourselves as different than them, not struggling like them. Again, if you're not a Christian here today, these are the things that we struggle with as believers. Where are you saying, I'm, I'm only okay if? Fill in the blank. Go home and talk about this as a family. I'm only okay if. Something, something must be right in your life, a way of, of thinking or being. I'm only okay. Idols ultimately come and whisper to us. We bow down to them. We do, we're devoted to them. And then they come along and say, oh, uh, I would have come through for you, but you didn't work hard enough. Oh, no, you, you needed to, to try harder. You needed to love me more. I would have been there for you, but you just didn't do enough. Often the experience of, of encountering an idol is actually tasting a, a kind of shame or guilt. And that's what they do. Idols will communicate that. They will not communicate grace and mercy to you. And so, in the end, we are mocked by our idols. What we're trying to do as a church in this series is to re-experience the beautiful gospel where Jesus on a cross defeated all that would hold our heart's attention. What we're after is Jesus who came after our idols and had victory over them. The direction of our heart is changed through knowing Jesus. A new direction is now underway, and we are struggling with idols, but idols, if we've trusted Christ, do not finally and ultimately own us. So progress in the Christian life finally is this. It's rehearsing and delighting in our many privileges in Christ. How you make progress in the Christian life is you're remembering and rehearsing in your mind a better gospel. And let me apply this to one aspect of your life. Let's say you are heading up a project at work right now. You are wrapped up in this project. It feels like your whole life is on the line because of this project. Okay? Now you sense that your team of people you're working with are a bunch of losers. They just don't have the energy. They don't have the resolve. They're not as smart as you. They're not as concerned about you. They're not as efficient as you. They're not as skilled as you. It'd be fun to work with you. Now, here's the deal. Here's what you have to do. As important as that project is, you know. You know it's not going to come through for you and fulfill your life. You know that. But it sure would be exciting. It would sure be exciting if it did. So here's what you have to do consciously. You have to put that project in its place. It's not up here. It's down where your, your feet are. That's what that project is. Now, do you know who's up here? The one who had a far gl- more glorious project than your little project at, at work. It was the project of saving sinners by coming from heaven to earth. In other words, you have to think of a way 
of becoming more happy in the gospel than you are in your little gospel. You've got to speak the language that you gravitate to. So, for instance, maybe you're a, a clean freak at the house. Uh, I'm not, but maybe you are. All right. Now, to be around you will be very hard for the rest of us because we're not like you. So how can you bear with us? How can you bear with us lovingly and joyfully, not begrudgingly? How can you help us? By thinking about what a mess and what a, what a mess you were and an unclean rag you were in the image of Isaiah. In other words, you've got to figure out to take your little chunk of the world and then move it up to the world that really matters. Take your agenda in life and go, well, you know, God has a better agenda. Take your project. Oh, God pulled off a better project. Take your tendency toward cleanliness. Oh, you know what? God did a better job than I ever would. Uh, and you take whatever you get wrapped up in and now begin to get creative and begin to think, wait a minute, there's a better, there's a greater, there's a more lovely, there's a more freeing, because this is the world of enslavement. This is, this, is not a, this is not a fun world. And this is the world of freedom. The little functional saviors are not going to save you at all. And now you must be suspicious of them. Detect them. Hear them. Ah, see. And then move into the realm of freedom. Now, when Satan tempted Jesus... The final temptation was this. This is Matthew 4. Satan took him to a large mountain. And does anyone know what Jesus was shown? What was Jesus shown? All the kingdoms of the world and their, and their glory. And their glory. He was shown the possibility of some aspect of creation to give himself wholly over to and to glory in some aspect of creation and to give his allegiance to Satan and to experience the glory of the nations without the cross. And Jesus successfully resisted that temptation to idolatry. And that same Jesus loves you. That same Jesus went to the cross and now is the ascended king and he knows your heart and he knows the glories that you would want to go to, the glories you would want to move toward. He knows your heart and he is after you. And even in the children of old, the uh, Israel children of old, when God promised to them, I will boot you out of the land, and he did in the Babylonian captivity, he brought them back, and he kept his covenant with them. And he keeps his covenant with you through Jesus, who was the faithful one who never bowed to an idol. And he's committed to your freedom Day after day after day, he's working that you would taste of his glorious gospel, life-giving gospel, day after day. We will not be free from idols until we are free from 
from this moment of momentary existence. But God will give you grace to sustain you and to give you strength. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this freeing gospel that frees us from our idols. And so, Lord, may there be good conversations that flow. May there be uh, a graciousness about how we treat each other. May we look deeply at our hearts and see what controls them. And then we might find a Savior who knows us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.